Alrighty. I wanted to shout out to some uh, listeners who have been sending us questions. We love that. And um, we appreciate people getting getting involved and being interested and wanting to learn. We'll do our best to come around to those questions um, as we're able. We talked about, well, we tried not to talk about Praxis <laughs> in the last episode. Uh, we did kind of get there in the end, but we thought maybe this was a nice opportunity for us to just revisit that on purpose this time. Um, and funny enough, after the last episode, I was listening to uh, Lex Friedman's podcast with, I've got to check his name, um, Robert Plater. I hope that's how how you say it. The Boston Dynamics CEO that trying to do the humanoid robot stuff. And they were talking about trying to make robots do the things that humans can do. And the whole time I was like, this is Praxis. You're trying to replicate Praxis. And they were, they're coming a long way, like good on them. But it just, if you wanted to understand how hard or how amazing really and how integrated Praxis is, go and listen to them talk about trying to get robots to do, pick things up and throw them and do backflips and walk along surfaces. Um, I, I might get the quote wrong, but he said something like, the loose rock is like the death of a robot or something like that because they just can't um, deal with those sort of unexpected things in their environments and rapidly adapt, although maybe they're getting a lot better at that. It would be fun to, to ask him to come on, <laughs> get a little more information about, maybe be able to uh, offer some ideas around how they could get better. Um, I'd love to have a little robot dog that could do th fun things. <laughs> with me um anyway so I guess that kind of also moves me towards the somatosensory base dyspraxia we did talk about the other clusters but I was thinking about a little kiddo that I had a while back now um and I was observing him in childcare in in preschool I guess and I was just in the room at the time and he happened to bumble along and and sort of bop his head on the corner of a like a table I guess it wasn't a bad one but he kind of hit his eyebrow and he got a bit stunned and looked at me and then rubbed the other eyebrow and I was like wow if that's not the clearest sign of a lack of clarity around mm. my body and the input coming in and where was that then I don't know what is and it was such a clear observation I could go to the educator like did you see how he just rubbed the opposite eye to the one that he bumped? And she was like, oh, well, that's weird. <laughs> like she, And they'd not noticed it before, you know. It's not always that in your face. So maybe we could just chat more about, I guess, about the somatosensory basis to this cluster and firm that up in everyone's minds before we move on to something else. Yeah, so somatodyspraxia, right? It's a body-based dyspraxia. And it, it's really, Dr. Ayers did so much research to really bring to the very forefront how our ability to have detailed, clear body schema and body map is what sets the scene for the exquisite, skilled capacity of praxis. 
So when we're working with children who have these difficulties in the clinic and you see how off they can be in understanding the signals of their body and what it is that's telling them about the front of space, the back of space, the left and right of space. Um, you know, if you can't tell your, literally cannot tell your elbow from your hand, trying to learn how to color with a crayon is a humongous task. It, it isn't a coincidence that many of the kids that we work with that have functional daily concerns around, I can't tie my shoes, you know, my fingers don't do that work. Um, and when we look at them through this lens, we learn that their tactile discrimination, their somatosensory awareness, their kinesthetic processing are all super undernourished, not working well. And it isn't an under response. It's really just that that body map isn't rich enough. Mm -hmm. The information processed from receptor into the parietal lobes, into the cerebellum, into the haptic processing, all of that is weak. And Dr. Ayers really elucidated this. And then when you see it in the clinic and you realize that you know, learning how to walk on wobbly rocks is not just practicing walking on wobbly rocks, that you really have to mm. help the nervous system to integrate the experience of sensation, of somatic sensation, of movement, of vision. And you have to have a lot of enhanced experiences that allow for that map to become um, dynamic and solidified in the same breath. So it's not static and it's mm. not just dynamic. It's the combination and that map, you know, the homunculus, this is kind of cool. Yeah. The homunculus was recently updated and we'll put the link in the show notes for the updated research on this, but it was just this year updated mm. to say that the homunculus as, as we've always seen that just that body map has to be understood mm. for what happens when there's movement because the purpose mm. of somatosensory processing, the purpose of sensory integrative processing is always for the production of a skill. And particularly in the praxis circuitry, our body map literally has to be dynamic. It has to understand what happens when my foot moves across the surface and it's no longer steady in one spot, but maybe twisted a little bit in one direction or another. And how does that change my body map? If that upsets the apple cart, I'm going to fall down. If the brain map gets mm. scattered by movement itself, by the experience of using the sensation, wow, it becomes super complicated. So it's a really powerful thing for us as OTs to have the theory from heirs to say that the sensory systems in discrimination leading into perceptual functions lay the foundation for skillfulness. And as we treat across that pathway, those pathways where we're drawing from sensation into skill, and understanding the dynamics that are at play. Wow, there's so much to unpack there, so much to observe, 
so much to treatment plan around. And the progress is made by treating the whole, not by practicing the end products. That's a really, really critical concept that we need every OT certainly to understand. I'm trying to visualize this concept that you talked about of the input from the senses, particularly the somatosenses. So I guess if we're talking about the wobbly rock situation, the feedback from the tactile input underneath my foot and then the proprioceptive signals in the joint of the ankle and maybe like all the joints of my foot even um, to know that I'm sort of on something round and then now know that that's shifted underneath me. So I'm getting that detection. If I haven't had ankle injuries uh, that have loosened my ligaments and made me poorly able to perceive that, then I get that signal into up into my brain, into the homunculus. But I'm curious around, oh, it's so funny because I just always felt like the homunculus was static because you get seen, you get shown it in a picture. It feels static in that way, but I'm trying to understand how. So say the part of my homunculus that detects the information from foot, ankle, lands in my homunculus in a reasonably similar Mm -hmm. way. So that information's come from that specific body part. Mm -hmm. Does, is there like a set of neurons that is related to, that's really dedicated to that part of my body? And if it's in one position, it kind of fires a certain way. And if it's in another, it kind of shifts to the neurons around it. So we have this dynamic information about our foot or like, is that just getting... Do we just not know that precisely? Or how do, how do I make sense of the homunculus being this dynamic thing around movement? Yeah. yeah. So I think what I love about this update um, is that it, it sort of addresses that question in a way that defies the standard way we're taught, which is that we're taught that these things happen in a linear process. Mm. But we know from dynamic mm. systems theory that the linear process is never a linear process. Mm-hmm. But we often think about feed forward and feedback as being sort of things that are separated from each other. And what you're describing is really the interplay between those, right? So if you are stepping on a surface and you're walking, the feed forward momentum of gait and, and the timing of walking would have you placing your lower extremity in a certain way out in space and continuing that pattern. And the feedback of something changed would modify the feed forward. But really Mm. what we understand is that the feed forward is waiting for the feedback and the feedback is waiting for the feed forward. So those two things are actually happening simultaneously, not sequentially. And that is kind of um, mind-boggling sometimes because we are taught that it's feed forward and feedback. So but um, is this happening centrally, like in the mm-hmm. brain, or is it happening per periphery? Like I'm just, I'm trying to imagine how, like, and I know the brain's so complicated that sometimes I just can't get my head around it, but I'm, I'm trying to imagine that 
in my brain, I'm like, okay, well then the feedback system has like this set of neurons over here and the feed forward system has these set of neurons over here. And maybe they just like intercommunicate all the time, the whole way up and down the chain. But then I'm like, I just don't, I'm not picturing, I don't really understand, you know, like how that actually works. Um, so is it in the actual brain that this process is happening, that there's just this constant communication between what am I doing? What am I done? What am I doing? What have I done? Or is it like, how does that work? Yeah. So it is more central in the learning process, in the developmental process. It's more in the central nervous system. But because the peripheral receptors are also learning in the neural network, once you know that when I'm running and I need to stop quickly, that I need to recruit the strength and the tension of the front of my foot versus the back of my foot. And then the receptors in those fields actually start to change because they become richer receptor beds for pressure of a certain type. And so the whole thing does change neurodevelopmentally so that eventually it is partly peripheral, but it's mostly central. Yeah. I think I get what you're saying because you're, what you're saying is that as I'm doing one thing, my brain might be preparing for the next thing that I'm going to do that might be a change. And in that preparing process, it readily activates kind of like preemptively gets the body ready. So might be already firing up the hamstrings or the whatever that I need to recruit to then do the change part. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. Is that the colliery? There's something like random words pop in my head as you talked about that. Is there some colliery, is there a mechanism that allows that to happen, that you get more readiness of the receptors and neurons around that in anticipation to get going, which is that get ready front of foot to stop quickly? Yeah, is that yeah, is that absolutely, absolutely. Discharge, yeah, so that sort of corollary discharge is part of it. And then in the central nervous system, yeah, there's this kind of heavy and learning process, this active learning process of recruiting, mm. recruiting, recruiting, the expected connectivity. This neuron and this neuron mm. start to work mm. together. You know, that neurons that fire together, wire together kind of mantra that we know Mm. back from the 2000s. But it's really literally true that there's this anticipation that that's going to happen. So what happens for the robots or for us as we're walking on rocky surfaces that are unexpected is that we don't do that all the time. And so we have to slow the whole processing down. We have to start to rely more on a stronger feed forward circuit. And so in that, the sensitization of the peripheral receptors gets asked to be more sensitive. Mm -hmm. Like I need a little bit more information Mm -hmm. here, so come on. And so that field Mm -hmm. of receptors that are sitting on my footbed get sensitized because my brain needs more information. Um, And so then it's- Rapidly, I guess. Yeah, that happens very, very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. What it made me think of, maybe this is a bit of a random link, but it made me think <laughs> of Michelle, you know, when we did that <laughs> eye movement, we just did that study 
in our bring your own brain study group <laughs> on the yes. eye control movement. And it was a, a paper that you had told us to look at, Tracy, and I cannot remember the name of it, but it was really fascinating. I guess they found that preemptively the eye, like when you anticipate, you're thinking about moving the eye over to a new spot, your brain's already preparing to see the visual input in that new spot that that you haven't even put your eye over into that place yet, but it's like already lighting up the visual mm. receptors in that specific, like all the, I guess the rods and the cones that are taking in the information from that p- visual place in my environment. They're like already starting to prepare for that next thing that I'm going to look at. And I, that that's, I guess it's again mm. that where am I and what am I going to do? And then pre- preparing and responding in, into those two things. I don't know, that that made me think about that, <laughs> Michelle. And then it makes me wonder, we've talked about these before, but the pulling in the partners, because as soon as I'm walking on a surface, like a cement path, for example, it, it's automatic. I'm talking to my partner, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I get to, if my visual field hasn't caught it already, I suddenly walk on uneven ground. So let's keep with the pebble um, idea. That information from somatosensory input will kind of not add up. So then I'll draw on vision. And my first thing is like, oh, vision. But also because my pace is changing, the vestib system's also like, oh, we're accelerating and we're not. And then there's a disturbance like, you know, polyvagal theory, let's pull that in too. Then there's a, oh, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's a stilling and I, I can see yeah. so many little kids, it, it's kind of cruel. But you know when you're at the beach or somewhere or grass and you see the toddlers walking on it and often it's for the first time and there's that stilling and the real like – not startle, but there's a, and the parents like, come on play, go out to the water or, you know, whatever. (laughs) There's this urging and they've just got this, you know, feedback through their feet. And then even if they're looking at it, it's like, I just can't make sense of this. And I actually can't keep going forward yet. I need, I need to be picked up basically, or, you know, whatever, but it's like, ah, that is where you can just see it. Um, yeah, so let's uh, let's unpack it, that just a little yeah. bit because I think this is so interesting and 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 cool. You know, we think about we're talking about somatosensation <laughs> as this kind of perceptual layer that supports skillfulness and how as we need more information, the nervous system can recruit more information. But what you're describing mm-hmm. in that situation of Here's a little bitty one who's going to walk on sand for the first time. And even with all of the affective cueing around them, that this is fun and interesting mm. and wonderful, the novelty of the touch experience mm. or the proprioceptive uncertainty of that novel experience mm. is so big that even with a lot of positive, affective, fun, you know, kind of wooey, cuey kind of stuff going on, we still can have this baby's modulation circuitry say, my brain is answering the question, is this a good thing or a bad thing? As this is a bad thing. And so the opposite happens where in the the novel motor plan requires that there's an increase in 
feeding the sensory information so that Mm. the baby can figure out how to walk on the uneven surface. But the modulation system is saying, no, 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 this is a bad thing. Mm. Don't let yourself even touch it. So the baby withdraws their feet. They don't want to be sat down. If they sit down, they're crying or they're begging to be picked up and taken out of the situation. So the modulation system is is telling the system the opposite. No, don't sensitize and tell me more about what's going on. Actually get rid of it. Mm. And so here we have this interplay between modulation and discrimination processing. Mm. And it happens all day long to us, all the time. In novel Mm. experiences, if the nervous system gets the signal, this isn't safe, you don't want this, then you are restricted from the information you need to solve the problem of it. Mm. And so there is this interplay, Mm. and we know that we have to treat the modulation issue in order to clear the slate for that discrimination to even become relevant and meaningful. Yeah. And then as we treat the discrimination element, um, that helps the modulation component. That's right. And in that example, Trace, if the babe does kind of steal and then is like, oh, give me more information, looks tentative, so alarm, neuroceptive, not safe, start to work it out. So they might go a lot slower. They might want to hold hands as they, you know, that increased stability maybe, or maybe it's the co-regulation piece of the hand holding that they're getting through touch of holding another I can understand how you went to modulation with that example I gave where they really stopped and then had that negative emotion. When they're tentative, it's I don't want to pick apart that example, but when they're tentative but still moving forward with support, their own sensory system support that's probably co-regulation from another and breaking it down a bit, does it sit a bit more in that discrimination rather than the modulation piece? Yeah, it absolutely does. And so what happens in that situation is that as the baby ventures forward, even tentatively, the Mm. input that's coming from the tactile and proprioceptive system primarily, Mm. so we're talking about somatosensation, obviously Mm. there is visual and auditory and vestibular partner going on. But if we think about the somatosensory experience, what happens is something really important. And that is that the venturing forward does feed information into the system about here's where you're Mm. at. Here's where you're at. And as long as the baby is like, I kind of got that. Okay, I know where I'm at, but I'm a little tentative. But every time they have that Mm. input of here's where you're at, there's actually a spreading activation of the homunculus, an enriching of that body map. But simultaneous to that, the nervous system draws the somatosensory information, not just for the homunculus, not just for this spreading activation of here's where I'm at. I'm understanding this shifting sand under my foot. I'm going to do it again. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Mm. But really importantly, the nervous system also draws that somatosensory information to create inhibition, to say, you don't need to leave. You Mm. want to venture forward. You don't need to leave. You need to venture forward because the baby's in engagement and the modulation circuitry is waiting for that inhibitory cue 
And the somatosensory system mm. is the primary inhibitory system. So it brings on board the inhibition that allows the tentativeness to turn into I'm okay to then turn into I want to play. Mm. And so you see that just mm. unfold right before your eyes. And it is the magic and the power of the somatosensory system mm. to cue us around safety, to then cue us and woo us into participation and engagement, to, to then mm. enrich the map and give us all of the possible affordances, and then to give us the inhibitory control to become really exquisitely skillful. So the whole thing is somatosensory dependent. It's, it's quite incredible. See, you've spoken to me before around the valence and this tipping. Like, is that part of this as well? That somatosensory system, the the part where they go, "Oh, here I am, uh, keep moving forward," versus ah, "Get me out of here." Is that the valence, whether it tips or whether it wobbles, and they co-regulate it or get more information and so you know do things to slow it down that keeps them adaptive and engaged versus the valence tips and it's all over Red River. That's precisely it. Yep, that's spot on. I I thought about, Michelle, you brought in the polyvagal stuff around this whole process because in the moment that they're Mm. tentative, there's that slight sympathetic Mm. activation. Mm -hmm. The input is signaling potentially maybe unsafe and then you get that slight Mm. partial freeze or just stilling and like orienting and then like with with Audrey she'll look at me and kind of go like what the heck and um and you're right like I can use my social engagement circuitry for her to go oh it feels funny like oh funny on your feet and then she's like yeah it kind of does feel funny like but it takes a little bit but I can use because that's a capacity that she can draw off of she can then use that to modulate or inhibit the modulation circuitry. Yeah. 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 And then re-regulate and then do the approach, I guess, to then refine the somatosensory mm. input of what is this grass or sand or thing that I've got my feet in. So just going back to that valence and the tipping and that, so that, which I love that you said the stilling. So there's a pause and that's where the body can, if we get a co-regulator to go, yeah, yeah, hang in there, don't fire off and tip off into real mobilisation. And um, that's that point where it's wobbly that you've got an ability to just hold them where they're at, co-regulate it, and the valence goes, oh, okay, mum thinks it's okay and I trust her, she's reliable. It's weird, mum, if you want to call it funny, I call it like, what the hell? <laughs> it's not just what the heck, it's like bigger than that. Depends yeah, on your I'll response, I guess. Your, oh, it's funny. <laughs> How much it was like. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's I think that's a bit where it's like you, there was a pausing, a stealing, you signal safety, yeah, it's okay, babe, it is funny. Um, and then she had then capacity, I guess, to dampen down her arousal, which allowed inhibition to happen. Ugh, did no. I that up? Yeah. In my mind, it's, again, trying to keep in mind the fact that the 
social engagement circuitry, the ventral vagal capacity must have such deep intricate links to Mm. the modulation of somatosensation. And so somatosensory input mm, to me has to be delivered in the context of ventral vagal state for curiosity and exploration for skill development. That's right. And Mm. in the context of co-regulation, because the way that Mm. the co-regulatory experience, whether or not we think about that through an attachment lens or just through the polyvagal system, Mm. you invoke this quieting, this kind of like, as soon as you get that pause Mm. and you get a reference to, I Mm. need the other to help me through this experience And some of our kids offer that signal so quickly and so elusively that we don't always Mm. pick up on it. And then their nervous system gets really confused. What am I supposed to do here? I was Mm. looking for that partner. I was looking for the person partner. Mm. I was looking for an environmental partner. I was looking for my brain partner to give me the cueing, the signaling, or the extra reassurance that I need, whether that be through enhanced proprioception or enhanced mom energy, whatever that is, that allows me to restory the uh-oh to a oh curious to a oh maybe you know we're kind of moving them through this emotional affective sensory motor experience and as we move them through that kids create adaptation when they don't get what they need the adaptive response is constrained and limited and then the next opportunity is repeated with more trepidation with more error with less efficiency, because we're not growing the richness of that network. And that's precisely what happens in the journey for kids who are where it's coming together well and and when it isn't coming so well together. Yeah. I'm loving watching you watch Audrey grow with your OT head on, as you know, as well as mum, because it's happening pretty automatically luckily and we're very grateful for that um for Audrey and you're like you've sent me some (laughs) videos that only us could kind of appreciate break down frame after frame for the 30 seconds of her finding her hands and putting them in midline together or you know I think she was trying to get a toy once for a long time but she stuck with it it's fascinating Trace with your grandchildren how automatic it can be and that you can just signal oh it's funny isn't it honey and then sand becomes not a thing that's a thing that you ever really have to think about or or respond to in that way again it's like oh we do it with sand automatically like lots of families wouldn't even know that there may be an issue with a different texture on their feet and yet you know we also are working every day with kiddos where that automatic that real something isn't processing well so it doesn't the whole experience doesn't sync up in a way that's automatic for them and integrated in just daily family life that it requires intervention and really thoughtful and nuanced um, and planned out intervention to support them to get the tactile import mm. or the mm. amount of sensory intervention that they need that it that you can't shortcut it. You can't just take them to sand, as you said, 50 times and think, oh, come on. 
Yeah, let's get Yeah, and I think that's partly sometimes the most powerful stuff that we do write is in our observations that aren't your typical day-to-day things people pay attention to. Mm -hmm. It's just drawing people's attention to the fact that like, ah, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that being the sand. I just thought they just didn't want to do the, the game. I just thought they didn't want to play or whatever. Like it's a really powerful position to shift the perception of it because it mm. when you're not purposely trained to look for that moment, you don't really see it. Like pre-OT, I wouldn't have been, if a kid had stopped on the sand, I wouldn't have necessarily been like, oh, they don't like sand on their feet. Mm. I could have thought it was like a whole bunch mm. of different things why they didn't want to keep going or even – like I probably wouldn't have even noticed when that little kid bumped his eyebrow mm. that he rubbed the other one because yeah. I'm so always looking for the clues from the systems where the breakdown might be. That's where I love to share with families my observations around that and then families just like take it and run with it. Once they start to see it, mm. they see it, they really see it and they know it and then they can they can get it and then it really makes it more powerful change than than just me doing it and I love that as part of our job like how we can have some benefit in that way yeah absolutely yeah that dawning awareness that we see in the parent is the same thing that's happening to the baby when they suddenly can feel their feet when they couldn't before mm-hmm. and so all walking was trepidatious let alone on sand or rocky surfaces because if you don't have strong awareness of your body in space, how are you supposed to move? Mm. And then when you start to make sense of it and it becomes available to you, the affordance is now changed mm. and I can feel my feet and I do know that they can move and I do know they can weight bear and I do know all of those things. So we work with kids with all different levels and layers and layer and layers of profound restrictions sometimes. And as you Mm. open the possibility of my feet are walkables, it's so profound what happens. And then for these kiddos where it's more of a restriction of sand is scary and yucky, but now sand is fun, that shift, that growing awareness. So, you know, learning to discipline your observations through the lens of modulation, through the lens of discrimination, That is the crux of powerful intervention. And then from there, we have Mm. to layer in a lot of other knowing about the motor processes that are involved Mm. in praxis, the executive functioning processes that are involved in praxis, but it starts at this sensory level. And we always have to separate the modulation from the discrimination Mm. for our clinical reasoning to be effective. And so I really appreciate how you both are doing that and you're exercising those thinking muscles all the time. And, and now you're sharing that with everybody. So it's powerful. I appreciate that. Thank you, Tracy. That's just, um, you know, that you've had a powerful impact on my ability to do that. So thank you right back. But um, the thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about all the different things that you have to have in your knowing as a clinician around praxis it made me think about like if you're starting to do the understanding and observing this dance of the modulation discrimination functions and then maybe you're at a higher level with a kiddo that's then I guess then able to use their cognition and Mm. 
how we do this dance between this underlying process and making sure that that's kind of we're aware of that and we're harnessing the, how how we approach that in treatment. We're catching the opportunities to keep the modulation system at bay and whether that's, like you said, through enhanced proprioceptive feedback, whether it's timing, giving them more processing information, allowing and respecting the response their nervous system has and then creating the opportunities to restore it and have control over their approach a bit more or, you know, how, however it is, maybe we're grading it, whatever that p- part is that we're, I guess, intervening around that space. Then the other part of that that came to mind for me was the the kiddos that do have the cognition and then also the executive function mm-hmm. systems that we utilize often and I used to do it way too much <laughs> as a new clinician was just like try to reason with the cortex around praxis or, you know, and, and some kiddos do have, they're really intelligent and they do almost really over rely on the cortex in that regard. But maybe that's something we could talk about next time is the executive function components that relate to the praxis circuitry and the interventions, how we can make them look more holistic, I guess, to take into account both parts. I love that that sounds like the next good episode. I look forward to that for sure. (laughs) 